Welcome to my ops for the short-sighted view of the world. I'm Richard Ackland, the editor of Justinian, and my little newsletter, 500 Words. I'm Hugh Villier, and I'm a law student at Monash University, and I also do some economics of research at UC Berkeley. This will be a regular pod examining the major issues of the news through the lenses of politics and the law. Let's start our um, pod today with with the voice, the constitutional recognition and the voice to parliament by First Nations people. Probably the most contentious issue in Australian society and politics at the moment. Where are we at with this and where do you see the divisions uh, at the moment? I mean, we've got some very strong legal opinions saying that the criticisms are spurious, are not really worth the, the time for consideration, and yet the debate goes on. Where, where do you see this heading? Well, where the debate has really gone into is less and less towards party divisions. I attended a, a seminar at Monash University in, in February. And that was attended by the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus at the time. And he's an excellent speaker, did a bit of an introduction for why this was important, what his motivations were. But one thing that had surprised me was that there was a clear intention not to have uh, politicians um, be at the front of this campaign. They were very keen to have more grassroots leaders take the lead on this. And it's I, I can really understand uh, understand that since they want to avoid the, the partisanship that can actually sink this uh, this referendum. Um, it's been talked about a lot in the media that if there is no bipartisan support from both the Liberal Party as well as the Labor Party, it is very unlikely that the double majority required in this referendum will succeed. So what it has is forced the divisions over this question of the voice create sides that probably weren't politically traditional. So you see Peter Dutton's Liberal Party now forming joint views with individuals such as Lydia Thorpe, who would be probably more classified towards you know, the far left of Australian politics. And same as we see in the right. I mean, Julian Lisa now uh, leaving, quitting the, the front bench of the Liberal Party in order to take his stand in support of The Voice, now putting some, himself or aligning himself towards the Labor Party. But then, again, you know, Lisa has some fairly strange views about the voice. He wants to actually remove part of the recognition component of the constitutional amendment, and he wants to remove the main part of the voice that actually gives First Nations people the right to make representations to both the parliament and the executive. He wants that removed. So really what's left of the voice. But what do you think his motivations are here? Because I'm not, you know, he's leaving um, the side of saying no to come and join Labor in support of the voice, yet he's also asking for it to be different. It's very strange. He seems to want 20% of the voice and says that he's in favour of it, but he's not really in favour of it. But if you cut out the clause two of the voice, which gives the Indigenous communities the, the right to make representations, and that's all it is, representations. It's not consultations, it's representations. If you remove that, it's a fairly pointless exercise. You're just left with the parliament has power really to make um, 
laws with respect to First Nations people. It's a power that it's already got. It's got that power through the the race power in the in the constitution, which of course most Indigenous people are not in favour of using that power. But nonetheless, there is Parliament does have a power to make laws for Indigenous people. So I can't really see what Lisa's recommendation is, how it's going to advance anything. But at the end of the day, he says, well, I'm, I'm going to campaign for my model, but I'm, I'm going to vote yes anyway. Mm. I think he's trying to keep in good with you know, the Conservatives in the Liberal Party and um, stick with the, in a sense, with the people that co-designed the, the voice and uh, the propositions around it. Mm. So, so there is a bit of a political motivation in his reticence and criticisms of the current um, form. He's stuck on the barbed wire fence there. Do you want to maybe give, just for the listeners, a bit of a, a brief overview of what The Voice is and what's being proposed? The Voice is an attempt, and it it, it may but may not be an entirely perfect attempt, but it's an attempt about respect, recognition, and reconciliation. And, of course, under the the Gama principles, this is just one component of achieving those three things. In essence, it's a very simple amendment to the Constitution. It simply says, there shall be a body called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. Then the next clause, which Lisa, the former spokesman, Liberal spokesman for Indigenous Affairs, wants to remove, and that clause is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice may make representations to the Parliament and the Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And then the third one, which is the sort of self-evident component, the Parliament shall, subject to the Constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including its composition, functions and procedures. So it's fairly clear, but of course it's been swept up in a massive, confusing, conflictive, and not really, mm-hmm. some of them not really intelligent um, criticisms, you know, ranging from it'll lead to a, um, a flood of litigation, it, it's, um, it's, not, it's, it's not enough, uh, it's giving one group a greater say than the rest of the country, um, and it's, you know, I mean, I've even read things in the in uh, Murdoch's The Australian saying that the the voice will be bad for business and it'll be bad for the stock market. It will affect the way the budget's formed. And they, I mean, hey. completely unsound and ungrounded thinking. And against this, you've had a whole weight of fairly prominent and highly qualified legal thinking, including the Solicitor General, Mr. Donoghue, saying it, it's perfectly compatible with the constitutional arrangements. And Ken Hayne, the former High Court Justice, and Robert French, the Chief Justice, said, well, of course, there may be litigation over it, but there's always litigation. The, the High Court is there to receive questions uh, you know, about constitutional issues, and it will rule. And it only takes a few rulings on any question to have the matter clarified and therefore end future litigation on that very topic. So it seems like they're really playing on doubt and uncertainty. I I think so, yeah. I mean, it it really is, um, you know, it's just sort of wrapped up with with this pathetic culture war uh, issues. And because it's a proposal of the Labor Party and... uh, an Aboriginal leadership which has been described as elite, 
and um, not present not representing blackfellas in the in the in remote parts of Australia. Therefore, we we can't have it. Yeah, and I think one common criticism I've seen is, is at least twofold. Is firstly that this is bringing in a form of of voting based on ethnic lines and therefore incites further divisions within our community and it is inappropriate within a parliamentary democracy, but also that its scope is uncertain and may actually unbalance the the process of lawmaking and power within parliament. It just seems that everyone else can have a, a voice, yeah. in a sense, a voice to parliament and the, I mean, the Law Reform Commission is a voice to Parliament. Uh, ASIC is a voice to Parliament. All these statutory bodies, the Law, of, the Human Rights Commission is a voice to Parliament. They do have a, a statutory power of making um, advice and reports to Parliament. The Business Council of Australia lobbies the Parliament and the Executive. Um, the Mining Council does the same. What the, what the voice is, because it will be consti- a constitutionally enshrined process of making recommendations, it gives it a moral authority. Yeah. And that moral authority, I think, is necessary if you want the three underlying elements that are ignored by the critics, the underlying elements of the voice, are respect, recognition, and reconciliation. And, and one of the, I mean, arguments in favour that I've, I've been most receptive to is this idea that it's, it's trying to rebalance the tyranny of the majority with the interests of a minority group. This is a classic issue within liberal democracy on, on a very strict basis of one citizen, one vote. This tends to lead to the majority having the entirety of the, the, the dominant decision-making power within parliament, meaning that all minority interests are effectively subjugated to it. And when you're, you're in a country like ours, where the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples' um, health and socioeconomic outcomes are considerably lower than the rest of Australia, it's necessary um, for them to have a voice that at least mm. can rebalance that. Mm. I agree. I'll be interested to see how the rest of this campaign goes. And since, I mean, it is such a, an, an important issue within Australian politics, and I think what may just as well be constitutional history. I think we'll be certainly keeping track of it over the next few weeks and months. Okay, so our next topic is that the pension reforms for increasing the age of retirement in France from 62 to 64 have passed through Parliament and are now in French law. Um, it's been quite a process where you've seen millions in the streets, but it's also part of a, of a larger concern with the viability of a very centralised and also generous pension system in France, which has been the pride of the French left, but has also been a growing concern with a, an ageing population. Australians really can't understand this this debate in France and the protests. I mean, 64 retirement... You're lucky. It's it's a pretty pretty good outcome, and instead of blowing up the entire French budget, you know, it's still a very generous scheme. And particularly, as you say, there are there are people, you know, the the resource base of this money is shrinking, you know, the, um, but the 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 population 
of claimants is actually expanding. So it's a no-brainer. No it's going to end up a disaster if it keeps going the way it is. I mean, it's a very interesting history. Since it was in 1981 under Mitterrand, who was the um, socialist president at the time, had reduced the retirement age from 65 to 60 in 1981. <laughs> well done. <laughs> and, it, and it's been a, a, a continued source of pride for the French left as, as much as the 35-hour work week, but for successive governments. And it's, it's been, I think, and it's a good quote from the prime minister in the 90s, Michel Rocard, who said, it's, it's a ref- with a reform to that retirement, there is enough to blow up multiple governments. <laughs> it's a real box of dynamite. Yes, yes. Well, he did, he did the uh, paper on it back in, um, when was it? He did the, the original report on which, you know, Macron is now acting. Yeah, the 1991 white paper, which, which outlines a very clear problem. You, you have a system that's dependent on people contributing to it in order to fund uh, pensions for an aging group. Yes. Now, the problem you have is that when you have an aging population, you have more people receiving and less people contributing. Yes. And they're, they're, and as comfortable as that system may be, there arises a genuine concern about its viability in the future. Did Macron uh, make some announcements the other day announcing a package of reforms, like to, to I suppose, to try and rehabilitate his uh, his standing well what you saw was last week uh, there was an announcement on an elocution to the nation that was televised uh, from the LSA palace by Emmanuel Macron and he was announcing a 100 day period in which he was seeking to uh, unify as well as appease through reforms and actions and i think some of the most interesting elements of these reforms that have been presented are ones centering around uh, the citizens conventions on uh, the end of life. These citizens' conventions, I think, are bodies comprised of citizens chosen at random and intended to reflect France's demography according to attributes such as age, gender, or educational attainment. They are mandated to deliberate on one salient topic, in this case, end of life regulation, with the objective then then proposing reforms to the government. So part of uh, Macron's reforms that will be presented to Parliament will be one using the propositions from the most recent Citizens' Convention to then be passed through Parliament. It's a very interesting innovation. I mean, have you heard of these Citizens' Conventions, Richard, before? No, I haven't. I'm, the, I'm very interested that it reminds me of the um, the program that people have been working on here to create uh, interest in, in a wider interest in Citizens' Conventions with the in other words, taking issues to the people and then letting the, the parliamentarians reflect on them. Uh, Bonjourno Netis is very much behind this. I think it's very much linked to a crisis of participation in France. I mean, abstention amongst voters has only been accumulating in France over the last 20 years. For example, according to the National Institute of Statistics there, in the second round of the legislative election last year, only 28% of 30-year-olds voted against 59% of those aged 65 years or older. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Which means if an elected body based on a very small amount of participation has a very weak popular legitimacy. And, And the presidency and a lot of political discourse is very conscious of this. 
And a citizen's convention seems to kind of be redrawing popular legitimacy through other routes by bringing in citizens, which are meant to represent the nation, and then have them (laughs) advise uh, the presidency on certain propositions. It's a kind of a voice, really, but in a a temporary sense. Yes. It's interesting that the parliament is, the French parliament is not always necessary when it comes to the crunch. It can be bypassed, um, despite a huge number of people opposing the increase in the retirement age, only only if it becomes an an issue of um, what parliamentary censure of of the president. But that... That wasn't successful. So the law without a parliamentary approval actually did pass. I wonder if we could get away with it. <laughs> well, I think there's there's a real debate, unlike Australia. In France, the parliament is not sovereign. It's not the dominant political force within the political system in France. And that's been an ongoing debate about whether, you know, who is very much the dominant force, the president or the the French parliament, l'Assemblée Nationale. And I remember when I was studying there last year at, at the Sciences Po School in Paris, there was that was very much part of the debate, seeing that history. And many would regard that the, the current regime in France is one that's presidential, or at least it's dominated by the president. And this does vary. In our case, what we have is the president's party actually has a relatively weak majority within the French parliament, which means he has to uh, make immense use of that Article 49.3, which essentially allows the government to circumvent l'Assemblée Nationale, provided that it could withstand a vote of censure. Now, this is part of a a tradition of rationalizing parliament, so that although there might be rifts and an inadequate majority within the the French parliament, they can nonetheless Uh. make laws. Well, this may be part of the explanation for why the um, why the participation rate in elections is so low for young people. Possibly they're presented with choices they don't like, you know, whether it's Macron, who's not very popular, or Le Pen on the other side. It, 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 does, it doesn't boil down to something really that young people are enthusiastic about, so they just stay away and they've got the, they've got the perfect right not to vote. No, and, and absolutely, and there's been and a part of the reforms that Macron has considered and actually has put for, put forth to Parliament in his last term has been to increase the amount of uh, pro- proportional voting in the French election, so that there is a greater reflection of that diversity of views, so that the candidates that French citizens and French voters would prefer to see do see them come to that first or second yeah. round of voting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What's what's Macron's popul- popularity at the moment? Uh, I'm not sure, but you see he's being attacked from all sides of politics. Yeah. Um, I mean, during his elocution last week, um, people were coming out on the streets with pots and pans, banging them together <laughs> to make sure that there wasn't this support. Parties to the, to the more far right, such as Le Pen, um, they, they benefited immensely, actually, from the, the civil instability. And they've been very openly against Macron's authority, and that's been the same to the to the more radical left. I, I don't think he's very popular. I haven't checked the um, mm. the polls yet, but there's and he's got a, quite a few years to go still in his term. But he can't run again, can he? No, no. 
Uh, Unfortunately not. So there, there's a lot of question as to what he will do next. Maybe he'll do like Jacinta Ardern and, and get three jobs at, at Harvard University. <laughs> yeah, there's always jobs on the circuit. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or he can start his own podcast. That's another one. Okay, Hugh, let's, let's wrap up this uh, edition of the podcast with a, a look at the Murdochs and their defamation problems, the ones in America with Dominion and uh, Lachlan Murdoch's problem out here with Crikey. Both were, well, in the Crikey case, Lachlan Murdoch withdrew completely, dropped the case. In America, it was slightly different. They settled and uh, for a very large, nearly 800 million US dollars. But in America, it's Fox is looking down the barrel of a whole lot of litigation, including the Smartmatic case. There's there's more been some recent publicity on the ABC about that. Also, another voting machine supplier. But more importantly, there's shareholder actions where they're applying under under Delaware law, where you can shareholders can apply to the court for access to all the internal papers of the Fox Corporation and Fox News. So they would look for, you know, all the financial statements, the relevant allocations of money within the, with a view to making an application that the directors and executives of Fox Corporation and Fox News should actually pay the damages themselves and not the shareholders. It looks like everyone's attacking them from all sides, really. Yeah, that's a more serious thing. If 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 Murdoch himself and Lachlan Murdoch and the senior people at, at Fox News are up for the money, the personally, <laughs> that's, a re- that's a real cooling effect on their behaviour. And, and it's not like suing Crikey would have been helping contribute to that repayment. Since in Australia, our non-economic damages repayments really only go up to about $500,000, just about. And it it means that if you're pursuing a party for defamation, it's going to cost far more than that normally anyways. So you're really not doing anything other than clout. I mean, speaking of defamation in media, Richard, have you yourself been attacked on, on defamation? Oh, look, several times, and I'll just make one point in relation to your to the cap on non-economic loss. That that's true what you say, but like all um, all the seeming provisions in the in the defamation amendments, there's a way around it, and the lawyers have invented a new way around yeah. getting around the cap, and that is by pleading aggravated damages. So there's no limit; you can go to millions, as Jeffrey Rush got and uh, Rebel Wilson. But I think in relation to, yeah, you asked me about defamation. I think there is a tribe now of what is loosely described as reputation litigation lawyers that crawl around uh, the internet and the media looking, looking for causes of action and then bringing them. And I think it's had a really chilling effect the one thing that everyone was hoping for with the with the Murdoch Crikey litigation was a test of the public interest journalism provisions in the new amendments to the Defamation Act. Would we be deprived of that now? So no one really knows in practice how public interest journalism defence is going to work, if at all. But my hunch is, like all 
the reforms in defamation, it's very difficult to work for the media. The media is on the back foot all the time in defamation cases and rarely wins a case. The imbalance is quite stark. And, um, I mean, on every significant issue of reform, the courts have found a way around it. It may be that we're faced not so much with what the legislation says, but with a judiciary that, that is intrinsically hostile to the media. And there may be reasonable reasons for that too. But it certainly is damaging for more open assessment of public policy and issues in the public interest if you have a media that's whacked every time it sticks its head up with something important to say. In a practical terms, how's that, for example, affected your reporting? It's interesting because I think with the internet and largely now all, you know, all report, all newspapers are on the internet. Everyone's on the internet. with, And that's the first port of call for even the mainstream publications. They all go on the internet. Their stories are posted online first. And I think if, if you get a, a warning letter from a lawyer or a telephone call saying, wait a minute, this is completely outrageous and we want to stop it and you've got to grovel and pay us a lot of money, if you amend the story. If you say, well, look, what are the factual issues here? Where are the facts? And where are we wrong with the facts? And I will correct the factual mistakes. Then usually it goes away. I mean, it's expensive to bring these actions. They're risky uh, to, to a certain extent. They're very time consuming and they're emotionally exhausting. So why would anyone want to do it? Well, I might do um, a bit of an introduction on what had happened, actually, the Crikey case. So it was June last year, Crikey published a piece by Bernard Kean headlined, quote, Trump is a confirmed unhinged traitor and Murdoch is an undidicted co-conspirator, unquote. So it was these claims that Trump had subverted the election and was effectively aided by uh, Fox News. Then Lachlan Murdoch's lawyers complained uh, to Crikey, asked them to remove the article and as a sign of goodwill, Crikey removed it. However, Although it was removed, it didn't remove the problem itself. And it seems like there was an escalation in, in the correspondence between Crikey and Murdoch, uh, resulting in the, public, the, the article returning to the online website with an explanation about it. And it seems by what some claim to be effectively goading Murdoch to sue. What did you think of Crikey's actions here? Yeah, I think they wanted to bring it on. I mean, Lachlan Murdoch had made various complaints about Crikey over the years and threatened them numerous times and they'd previously apologised or paid some costs to him and, you know, I think they were just fed up with it. Who was this bloke that ran a massive, powerful media organisation both here and in the United States and they're complaining, he's complaining about a, a relatively small, you know, spicy and interesting news and commentary online news service, when you weigh that against all the spite, misery, vindictiveness and lies that his organisation tells, it's a bit rich that he's bringing a, bringing a defamation action here. And of course, even though Crikey didn't plead truth as a defence or justification, they pleaded the, uh, this new defence of public interest journalism and they, they pleaded uh, longy uh, constitutional protection that they were commenting on political and governmental affairs, so they had this protection. They they sought to extend that defence that has never really worked for the media in Australia, but they sought to extend it to 
apply in foreign jurisdictions as well so that you could use that defence if you're talking about American politics and government. Yeah. Anyway, we di- it didn't get anywhere, of course, because it, Lachlan withdrew. It really does droop with irony. I mean, for example, all those defences of public interest journalism are, are those which have very much been lobbied and, and uh, used and relied on by News Corp and publications in Australia. Exactly. Well, they they did lobby for that that amendment, and then um, <laughs> the irony was that uh, Lachlan Murdoch's lawyer was very critical of it being pleaded in 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 his case with Crikey and wanted it struck out. <laughs> but you know, I mean, Lachlan has this sort of rather, I think, an infantile view on free speech. He he came into this this uh, litigation saying, oh, it's the right of free speech. I've got a right of free speech. The Dominion case is about free speech. We've got First Amendment protections in America. We can say what we like. I mean, this was the underlying way of looking at this is we've got an absolute right to tell lies. Well, I think the courts had a different view on that, and he may have learnt that subsequently. But uh, it, it just seemed entirely spurious and infantile for him to be sprouting this this idea that he can say whatever he like, no matter how many lies, because we've got the First Amendment protections. Well, he doesn't. Yeah, thanks, Hugh, for the discussion, and, and thanks to the listeners for listening and, and um, throwing a few pennies in the well for our ongoing efforts. Thank you. To listen to our next episodes, subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you'll listen to this on.